Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm your host, Rob Hunt, and uh, I'm coming to you from Southern California and from Linnea Holdens. And this week, I've got the unique opportunity of having both my co-hosts, uh, one out in vacation, being Jim Marty, and the other being uh, Larry Mishkin, who is celebrating the uh, wedding of one of his children. So this week, uh, we get to discuss all things cannabis and all things Grateful Dead, uh, largely solo, but I have asked our producer, Dan Humiston, to join us today. So, Dan, how you doing? I'm, I'm great. It's fun to be part of this show. I listen to it every week, and it's great to add, maybe add some of my insight for a change. Definitely. You know, I think a lot of our listeners know who you are because you've chimed in here and there, and you're certainly referenced a lot in the show. But uh, I think this is the first time we've actually had you on where you are actively participating. So, great to have you, man. It's only been two years. Thanks for finally inviting me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so one thing I'll say is Dan knows a great deal about the campus industry. He's been involved in the industry full-time now for, uh, I want to say, seven or eight years, and he used to put on some pretty, uh, pretty great events as an event coordinator um, for a long time. So when Dan and I first met, it was because I was a speaker at some of his events, and I believe Larry and Jim were back then as well. So as he's put together um, this Pod Connects podcasting group, um, we've gotten to, to kind of stick by him as he's done this, and it's been terrific. So, you know, Dan, I, I look forward to hearing your thoughts on the cannabis industry as you've seen it evolve over the last decade or so. Well, I'm happy to share my thoughts. I'm nowhere near as, as involved as you are at this point. I mean, uh, outside, of the, outside of the podcasting side where I actually get to be a, have a ringside seat to some of the exciting things that are happening, but you know, you're right in the middle of it. So it's, it's a, I, I can share my, my thoughts wherever I, I can, but it's not nearly as much as what you and Larry and Jim bring to the table. Yeah, sure. But I think from an osmosis perspective, you know, you'd speak to so many people through your podcast and so many people through your events that you actually have a really well-rounded view of everything that's happening in the industry from listening to others that are really in tune with their specific sub niches. So it's always cool to hear your perspective. Yeah, I, I, you're right. Through osmosis, you can't help but learn, and that's actually how I got it. How I got into the industry, I wasn't really sure where the best place to come in was, and I thought, geez, a trade show and a conference is kind of a good way to reverse engineer what's going on and identify where the opportunities are. And that's that. That was really the the genesis for me starting the first trade show was more or less for me to get somebody else to pay for me to learn how to learn all about the industry and where the opportunities were. And I think uh, as you did, you brought your daughter along with you. And now Carson runs uh, one of the biggest executive recruiting uh, firms in Canvas called Vangst. Yeah. And my youngest daughter just went to work for her, Logan. So we have another family member in there. My son helps me with this shit, with the, with PodConnect. So the whole Humiston family right now is in the cannabis industry. Who knew? That's great. And, and totally on the non-traditional side. I mean, none of you are plant touching, but all of you are very much involved in, uh, in advancing the industry forward. So thanks for the work that you've done. Uh, it's been fun. It's been fun. But uh, this is my favorite. This, this podcast, the Deadhead Cannabis one, is the most, I would have to say is the one that is one of the, my most, I'm most proud of. Because you guys <laughs> oh, just, uh, just say it's your favorite. Come on. No one's going <laughs> to no no, get offended. I'm, I'm really proud of where this has gone. I mean, it's really exciting what you guys have done with this show. And, and every week we get more listeners and every week we, you know, we, it, we make changes and it's fun. It's, it's a, uh, I'm really excited where it's going. I, I, you know that. Me, me too. And it's been a, a passion play for me, and every week I look forward to doing the show. So I will say that, you know, one of the two things, I've, I've gotten some feedback saying that, you know, we should spend more time really sort of digging into uh, spe special, like, sub-niches of the industry. And normally I think we like to do that with our guests, where we bring guests on that are involved in the industry and 
they really talk about what is it they're doing that's unique and special and different that you know kind of separates them out from everyone else. And I've got a little bit of criticism that sometimes we talk too much about sort of the Wall Street aspect of the show, and definitely I'm the, the guilty party there. But I've got to say that there's so much happening right now in cannabis from like kind of the M&A perspective and from, you know, kind of the big banking, big uh, industry side. That's really hard to ignore, especially if you've been in the industry as long as we have, to watch it go from like these little startups to all of a sudden now seeing multi-billion dollar market cap companies. And, you know, like it or not, we all kind of like we're hoping that one day cannabis would, would get, you know, big and accepted and everything else. But part of that is that in, in the process, you do create these large companies that, you know, ultimately have to grow up a little bit. And, and now that we're seeing that, you know, I think there's a lot of people that are like, oh, I just hoped it would say mom and pop cottage industry. Um, but from my perspective, it's, you know, there's room for both. And I think some of the bigger deals that have been happening have been really, really interesting to watch. Uh, I was wondering if your thoughts are on that. I, I agree with you. And I, it's funny because this is, reminds me of a conversation I had yesterday with Bob Hoban about his his show, the Bot or the Hoban Minute, and he we talked about exactly the same thing. Is like when I first got into the industry, I got a lot of pushback from the OG, like the legacy people, and they're like, uh, you know, you weren't at Woodstock, you don't belong here. You're, you know, you're a carpet bagger, and I'm like, you guys, we need, we need this, we need the big companies, and that's what's going to eventually get us to that next level. I know there's a there's going to be a place for everybody. The supply chain is so big that everyone's going to find their place, but it just doesn't make any sense to want to exclude growth or big, big opportunities or, like you said, some of these companies' billion-dollar deals. Who knew? But it's good for the industry because this is what we need to get us to the next level, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think with that, you know, we've seen some pretty major news come out this past week and some of it actually even happening today. You know, this morning it was announced that uh, TerraSend is going to acquire Gage Cannabis. Um, for those that aren't familiar, you know, both TerraSend and Gage are both public companies. Uh, Gage is one of the few public companies that actually straddles both sides of the U.S. and Canadian border, uh, principally having you know stores in the Michigan market. Uh, they're also the licensee for cookies in the Michigan market, and so they're um, you know they're a relatively formidable business. But you look at Terrasen, and Terrasen's been on an absolute tear. You know they uh, raised two hundred forty plus million dollars on a, a bought deal back in February. They've um, you know gotten into multiple markets. They've had some ch uh, changeover at their C-suite level, where I think Jason Wilde is kind of driving the ship over there now. But this deal that was announced this morning was a $545 million transaction that obviously still needs to get through regulatory, but that, that's not a small deal. That's a legitimately real deal in the space. <laughs> it's funny because I interviewed Jason on Friday, and we talked about Gage, and he never said a word. He and I'm like, the show's not even the show doesn't even air for another two weeks. And he could have, you know, he could have gave me the the exclusive, but he never said a word about it. And I had, I think it's Fabian from Gage on like two weeks ago. He never said a word about it. So these guys, they must, you know, they they knew this was happening. Good good for them. They're it, they seem like really you know like decent people, and especially Gage. Gage is killing it in Michigan. Yeah. I mean, they were they were killing it. Yep, I mean, they're definitely, they're clearly right now on the retail side, they're definitely the market leaders. So for Terrasend, you know, when you think about um, different markets they want to enter, the Michigan market I always look at as being really similar to the California market because it's like they've both kind of evolved as, you know, a very robust illicit market. Then they evolved into like kind of this like quasi-legal market where it was more of a gray market than anything else. And I remember back in like 2012 or 13, when I was still operating hydro stores in Colorado, and all of a sudden, like Hydro Farm and Sunlight and BW and yeah, BWGS and others were all opening distribution centers in Michigan, and they're telling us they're selling as much material out in Michigan as they were in Colorado, and all of us were like, 
like we don't believe it. Like there's no way. And the sales reps are coming back like, no man, like it's on out there. Like th that state is popping right now. But we're like, they don't have the regulatory the way, you know, Colorado does. And the response is like, nobody cares. They're just going for it. Like they, they passed like, you know, kind of a quasi law. And so you saw like, you know, this, this massive wave of, uh, of guys opening up, you know, like 10 lampers, 20 lampers, just blowing out, you know, extra basement, uh, extra bedrooms, you know, garages, some warehouse grows. But it was just like this free-for-all that was happening from like 2010 to 2014 before finally they're like, okay, well, let's, you know, make this into like a real market. And then they scaled it back. So it had like two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward. And there was this period where like they just couldn't get it together in Michigan. But ultimately what happened is you had like this like parallel path market of the legal market and the illicit market, but just expanding just exponentially. Then now when it's finally coalesced, like a handful of groups have taken what's a really fragmented market the way California is and now they're starting to um to to consolidate it engage I think is the one that's just done the best job doing it yeah and one thing that Jason mentioned to me that I, I didn't really it never had really given it much thought but he said most of the MSOs are looking at the limited license states because they can have a little bit more of a dominant position that own a monopoly and so they kind of ignored Michigan and where Gage said, you know what, we're going to focus just on Michigan and try to get, just dominate and build a moat, a moat around the, the thumb. And they did. And good for them. I mean, this is, Michigan is a big, and I, that's one thing that I didn't appreciate is how big of a market Michigan is. It's, it's a big market. Yeah. I mean, when it's all said and done, it's going to be a $4 billion a year market. Yeah. You know, when you think about it, on the legal side, it, it should be pushing $4 billion, no problems. If you think that Colorado's 2.2 and Michigan's twice the size. You know, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hit hard. But, you know, when you think about whose strategy worked better, you know, whether it was gauges or whether it was, the, you know, the MSOs that focus on the limited license states, I mean, I'd point to the fact that it's Terrasend buying gauge and not gauge buying Terrasend. So, you know, you think about it from the perspective of, and I had this conversation yesterday with the cold private equity guys, that, you know, you look at some of these limited license states, and I'll use Illinois and Florida as a prime example, the guys that opened up in those states and said, okay, we're going to go after a limited license state and just know that we're sort of guaranteed contracted revenue um, and guaranteed market share, they don't even have to be great operators. They just have to, to get the license and they have to exist. In a state like Michigan, Gage had to perform. Like they had to really truly be like hands down better than the other guys to be able to start, you know, doing what they were doing. But because they had such um, uh, saturation in that state, they weren't able to accrue a war chest the way some of the limited license operators are. So if you think about ultimately what the better play is, I mean, ultimately, Cureleaf and GTI and, and, and TrueLeaf and TerraSign and Jushi, those guys can go from their limited license states and they can enter into any sort of fragmented market like Oregon, Washington, Michigan, Arizona, Nevada, or California, and they can make a, a material impact pretty much the day they enter those markets because they're so well capitalized from their sort of flagship markets where they're you know, guaranteed 10% market share, 15% market share. So for a long time, I questioned the um, the validity of kind of that business model. But now that I'm watching who's, you know, who's taking the money they've made in these limited license states and then using that to migrate into the uh, the other states, it's those big, S the, the limited license MSOs that are winning this game. And, and you know, I think this Terrasen deal shows it. Yeah, you're right. And I, I think Terrace, I know Jason Wilde was an investor in Gage early on. So he had a very big position. So you know, it sounds like, you know, the merger was started a long time ago. Like, it's just... You know. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it had to have been. I mean, they, they, they couldn't announce it, obviously, until it's done. It's, it can't be announced. And they couldn't tell you about it because of, you know, obviously, like, if you traded on that information, you know, that's insider information. Nobody could have known outside of the, um, you know, the, the attorneys and the, um, and the bankers that were handling that transaction and, and the companies themselves. 
Yeah, the 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 but but the investment that Jason made was back I think in December before Gage Gage went public in April, I believe. So he's had a very big position before they went public. And so I, I, I think that they were you know, they probably were this was probably the architecture of this deal was probably crafted a long time ago. And it's just but it's but it's exciting. I love watching this thing all come together. I mentioned it. That's what I mentioned when we were talking. I said, it reminds me of the days, you know, I was really close to a lot of people in the video industry. And when Blockbuster and Movie Gallery and um, Planet or Hollywood Video started gobbling up all these independents. And if you, had a, if you were a video store, y- y- it was a license to print money because one of these three were going to buy you. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what's happening with Grogen right now, buying you know hydro stores. It's 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 the same thing we saw with telecom in the 1990s. If you actually had a cell tower, someone's coming in by you, whether it was you know T-Mobile or uh, or Verizon or you know one of the other big guys. Like it, the second you actually had some sort of um, a market share in a market they wanted, you were you know there's a guaranteed buyer on the other side of the trade. Yeah, nice to be in that position. Yeah, well. I think we're going to see a lot more consolidation. Um, and speaking of which, you know, we saw another pretty big uh, deal announced today too. That um, Planet Thirteen now is buying the Florida license from Harvest. So that was a fifty-five million dollar deal. And what makes that one interesting is it was an all cash offer. You know, it's very rare you're seeing these things all cash. Normally, it's you know twenty percent cash, eighty percent stock. But in this case, you know, Harvest had to divest the uh, the Florida license because they're being bought by TrueLeaf. TrueLeaf already has a license in Florida. They don't need two licenses. And they're not, Harvest isn't selling the stores. They're just selling the license. So essentially, Planet 13 paid $55 million cash for a Florida license, which gives them the ability now to open up as many stores as they want. And all of the Harvest stores, now that they've gotten through the, the Hart Scott Rodino um, scrutiny with the um, Department of uh, the Treasury, you know, now they're saying, okay, this deal's going to go through, so we have to divest as part of uh, the agreement our Florida license. So they sold it off for $55 million bucks, and they sold it to, you know, essentially what's a single state operator in Planet 13 who's been looking for a place to, um, to expand. You know, they've got designs, obviously, in a few other markets, but Florida for them makes a great deal of sense because that is a limited license state, and it's a limited license state where you can open unlimited numbers of stores with your license. So what do you think? Is that, is that a good move for Planet 13? I mean, Florida's the, th- the third most populated state in the country. I mean, and it's only getting more people. So, how can you go wrong if at a limited limited license state? I think, I mean, it seems heavy. Like, I mean, it seems like a pretty rich investment, but I, I can't imagine that it's not going to work out for them. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think it's uh, the only thing I see that's potentially wrong on that one is if um, Governor DeSantis decides to open up the adult use market, or the there's a ballot initiative that goes into effect. Let's say in the 2022 mids, and if it does. Then, you know, does it open it up to 20 other licensees and did they just pay $55 million for something that if they'd waited a year they could have gotten for free? Yeah. And that's always, you know, sort of the fear. It's the sort of the same fear that Ascend had when they bought the MedMen uh, license in New York is, you know, is this thing going to be a depreciating asset? Is our timing right? You know, it's right now, is that license worth $55 million? Yeah. But if it goes, you know, adult use tomorrow, then it's not. And, you know, if, it, if it's three years from now, then they'll recover that capital. They're, they're fine. They'll have built out 30, 40 stores before, you know, anyone else enters the market. But again, a lot of this stuff comes down to timing. Yeah, but even if you said, like you said, if it comes up, if, if let's just say it gets passed in the midterms in 2022, so we're you know we're over a year away from there. By the time they get all 
put the licensing paperwork together, get the applications out. You know, you're, you're a few years away. I mean, it doesn't just, it's, I don't know. You look at Illinois and they were so anxious and. Or look at Jersey right now. I mean, Jersey yeah. just announced what they're doing. Uh, you know, Hawkman coming into New York is just announcing what she's doing. You know, she's going to try to accelerate what Cuomo was not doing. But, you know, even so, as you said, from the time you pass an initiative or, you know, from the time the legislature passes it, you're looking at least two years before anything happens and then probably a year of litigation after that at best. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, three to four years out before anything really gets off the ground. Yeah, so that I think the investment will, will more than pay off for those guys. And then uh, speaking of Ascend Wellness and the, uh, the MedMen deal, they just raised um, $120 million in debt at 9.5% that uh, Seaport Capital just pumped into them, which, uh, you know, is a pretty large chunk of change on a debt deal going into Canvas at uh, sub-10%. So, you know, again, that's... That's a, um, a fair amount of confidence coming out of a very traditional capital group in Seaport, uh, pumping it into a cannabis company that, you know, Ascend, Ascend's doing all right. You know, they're certainly not a first-tier player. I, I'd call them a mid-second-tier, you know, low-second-tier player. So for them to pull $120 million in a debt deal, that's a great deal of confidence that Seaport has that that, you know, MedMen license is going to be worth a ton of money now that Hockman is, you know, moving forward to the New York uh, regulatory so another vote of confidence from outside the industry coming into you know one of the mid-sized players. What do you think they're going to do with that cash? Is there, will they go on a buying spree, or will they use it to shore up, you know, get rid of some of their old debt? No, they have to they have to pay for the license they bought from MedMen. So the oh. use of proceeds is they struck a deal with the um, with some of the debt holders that were holding MedMen's paper, uh, and they that was announced you know several weeks ago, uh, and then they needed to find a way to make sure that they could actually pay that. So. You know, they'll still have some cash left over, but a lot of that capital is already earmarked for um, for paying down the uh, the transaction that they've already consummated. Gotcha, gotcha. And then uh, speaking of cookies and Gage, um, you know, cookies licenses to Gage in Michigan, but uh, but cookies licenses to other operators, like they license to uh, GTI in Illinois, and they license to a handful of groups in uh, in California. Uh, well, they license to a group in Massachusetts called Nudia. And Nudia and Cookies opened up the uh, first northeastern location of Cookies yesterday in Worcester, Massachusetts. Actually, two days ago. And it crushed. So I don't know if any of you guys have uh, out there you know, pulled the news report on it, but there was lines around the block to get into that location. And here's a stat that most people like, find hard to believe. Worcester is the second biggest city in all of New England. It's bigger than New Haven. It's bigger than Hartford. It's bigger than New London. It's bigger than Portland, Maine. It is the number two by population um, city in all of New England, even though like no one really thinks of it as being a big city. Yeah. So uh, you know you've got a, a handful of stores. There's probably I think 17 stores now in the Worcester uh, metro, and uh, and this one location just literally sucked the oxygen out of the entire room and put up numbers that if I were to reveal it, you know you'd fall off your chair going, "There's no way they did those kind of numbers." But, you know, well over a thousand transactions on their first day in operation. Whoa. Yeah. It's, and they were open as a store previously, putting up like, you know, okay numbers. And they closed it down. They renovated it, put the cookie's name on it, brought in cookie's product. And bam, like, this absolutely slayed it. So if you're a, a cookies fan out there, you know, watch what these guys are doing. Because, you know, I, I was questioning. I, I did a lot of the work on that transaction. And I was questioning, you know, to what extent the, um, the marquee appeal is of the cookie's brand. And not only did like they sell out of every single branded cookies uh, joint and every single branded gram and eighth of cookies product, they sold out of every bit of apparel of cookies apparel. So you want to talk about like a true lifestyle brand? Um, Burner is killing it right now. Yeah, it's it is one of the few brands if 
from a dispensary side, especially that is starting to gain traction. You're, they knew about it in Massachusetts before it got there. And that's the same thing in Michigan. When they, when the Michigan license that, that Gage has that, that stores, those stores, I think there's more than one. They're doing, they're doing great. Yeah, there are. And, and the cool part for Gage, and this is something that obviously, you know, um, Terrason was aware of when they made this transaction is Gage also has the, uh, the license to do cookies on the Canadian side of the border. So I think they've got all of Canada as a territory. So you want to think about the value of, you know, of, of that brand and of those licenses. I think a fair portion of the consideration that TerraSign is paying for this is directly attributed to the, uh, the value that the cookies licenses come to, um, um, come to the table with, especially on the Canadian side where you, know, you can open up unlimited number of stores up there. If you look at you know the bigger retail groups like you know the Fire and Flowers and the uh, High Tides in Canada, you know those guys are pushing as many stores as you know GTI or Truly Biz on the U.S. side of the border. So you know, can you open up you know 50 cookie stores across Canada? Uh, I would expect that that's probably very much in the um, in, in the the business plan for wow. the Gage slash Terrasen group. It'd be fun to watch. It'll be fun to watch. Uh, we're we're going to have a front row seat, man. We're, we're going to get to watch all this. So speaking of front rows, uh, any music going on? I heard uh, when you and I were talking earlier, we were listening to the sound check of a, a show right outside your window where someone was sound checking Little Pink Floyd. I live, I live um, right next to a, a pavilion, and every Wednesday there's a, there's a concert. And usually right when we're taping, there's a concert, so I have to close everything and make sure it sounds proof. But... Today they were playing a little Pink Floyd before we got on, and I opened the doors and the windows so you could hear. They sound good. I'm gonna head over after we finish taping. Awesome. Well, uh, I wish I was getting to do the same, but I'm now looking forward to um, to a handful of shows that are coming up. Uh, I think a lot of people right now are looking forward to uh, this coming weekend for Fish at Dick's Sporting Goods, and then uh, Dead and Company is um, you know playing in Mansfield, Mass, which you know I think it was referred to as one of our former guests that we'll always know it as the um, as Great Woods. So whatever they change the name to, the Tweeter Center or anything else, it'll always be Great Woods. Um, great venue outside of Boston. And then, uh, you know, that was, I think, yesterday and, uh, and the day before. And then um, today, which, you know, being the 5th of September, it's Hartford. Um, so that should be a pretty fun show. So it's uh, a lot going on. But, you know, on the Fish side, I don't know if you've seen, there have been a lot of, a lot of concerts that have had to been rescheduled, um, some because of just you know, bad timing and COVID stuff. But recently they just had to reschedule uh, shows in Lake Tahoe because, you know, the Tahoe fire has now crept over the Sierra Nevada and it's coming directly into South Lake Tahoe. Uh, so the Harvey's Casino shows had to be moved down to Shoreline Amphitheater uh, outside of San Francisco. So I don't know if you've been watching the fires and, you know, any thoughts about that? I, you know, I, I'm not close to it because, you know, I'm not, obviously I'm not there. But it, believe it or not, we were getting smoke from the Oregon fires in Colorado and Denver. All of our smoke was real to a point where they were telling people they had to stay inside. So, I, but I, haven't, I don't know that much about the, the Tahoe fires. I do know that quite a few years ago I was there and, for a race and they, there was a fire, but they didn't cancel the race, but there was... Um, it was tough. I mean, it was tough breathing because plus you're at altitude. You're not used to altitude, and then you're dealing with <laughs> dealing with smoke, smoke, and it's and that kind of just settles right in there. In the in the the smoke just kind of settles into that area, and those people, that, poor people that live in that area, are probably a lot of them are starting to evacuate. I bet. I think the whole South Shore is now evacuated. Is it really? And it's uh, only two times in the, in like recorded history has a fire made it across the Sierra Nevada range, like made it across you know the, going 
down the valley on the other side, mm-hmm. and they've both been within the last month. So the the fact that like these fires are getting that much bigger and that much worse, and now you know I think there's a couple hundred homes that have already burned in uh, in South Lake Tahoe. So like, you know, I've spent a lot of time in Tahoe. I've got a lot of friends in Tahoe, uh, mostly on the North Shore. You know, not not so much on the South, but you know the the dead and fish have both had you know a, a fair amount of time spent in those places as well. Like Garcia used to play the JGB band played in Squaw Valley in 1991. I think. The um, the dead played Boreal Ridge, which is the top of Donner Summit, I think in '86 or '87. Um, you know, Fish has been playing uh, Harvey's Casino for you know for quite a while now. So, you know, it's a great place. I mean, you've been there. It's one of the most beautiful spots on earth. And to uh, to watch anything around there burn, you know, for me, it's just heartbreaking because it's such an amazingly special place. And the, and the lake, for those that have never been there, it's 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 I don't ever seen anything like it. How clear it is and from what i understand the reason it's so clear is because there's no there's no river that goes into it it's all just from it's, it's super deep and there's all just from this just from the snowpack as it melts but because of this fire and the smoke i guess it's making it a little bit cloudy now which you know, i hope that isn't a permanent thing because you know that is just i mean you could see 50 feet down yeah that's no, amazing it's, it's such a deep lake too i think it's the second deepest lake in america and then you're right. I mean, Truckee River um, is attached to it, but the Truckee River flows out of Tahoe, doesn't flow into it. So it's you know a little bit different. Uh, and there's streams that, that flow into it down by like Crystal Bay. Um, you know, there's there's some small stuff, but for the most part, it's there's no major body of water that flows into Tahoe. But it's just it, it's such a cool spot. And so you know, uh, to everyone that's out there, you know, stay safe. Uh, hopefully, you're able to, to get out of town in time, and hopefully, you know, everything's safe when you get back. But uh, but we're thinking about you. Yeah. But there is some other good music that's uh, that's been out there as well. I mean, it seems like everyone's you know kind of getting back out there and playing. And I'm seeing you know some great bills even coming to San Diego, which is not a town that's known for for great music. So it's nice to see that we're actually getting concerts that are that are coming back and live music that's coming back. And we do have um, you know both Dead and Company and Fish coming uh, coming our way. I wish Panic was coming our way. Um, you know, Umps I think was uh, was just here as well. So it's nice to see Umphrey's in town. But uh, all really good stuff. But it makes me think, you know, kind of we're at this Labor Day weekend time and, you know, the, all the great shows that have happened over the years. Um, but I was thinking about one in particular, and I, this is going to get into territory, Dan, you probably don't know as much about because, you know, you're, you're kind of uh, not on the straight Grateful Dead, you know, sort of nerdy side that me and Larry and Jim have been on. But uh, there was a show in 1982 that was at the Glen Harbor Regional Park that was part of the US Festival on September 5th, 1982. And uh, I love this show. And one of the reasons I love it is it's the only show I can think of where the dead went on stage at 9.30 in the morning. So it was, a, you know, it was a festival, so it also had some other huge name bands. You had Fleetwood Mac and Jackson Brown and Jimmy Buffett and uh, Jerry Jeff Walker were all on the bill. And the dead were the ones that, that, that opened this thing. And they came out and played, you know, not two full sets, but, but two pretty strong sets. And the thing I love about this show is that, you know, we always think about songs being either a first set song or a second set song. In the entire show, they only played one song that I associate with as being kind of a first set song. Um, but it opened up with a plane in the band, which is normally like deep into second set slot territory. Shakedown, which could go either way, uh, opened up next. But to have a plane shakedown open a show is just it was, like it's so much fun. And then went into a, a Minglewood and a Samson and a China Rider to end the first set. So a really short six song first set. And then um, came back out with a sugary second set opener, which is, oh, that's, that's the one I always think was a first set song. 
into a Wiener Smarter, into a truck, in, and then a drums without really having any space attached to it, and then a not fade away Black Peter Sugar Mags, and then they double encore with U.S. Blues and then the Rolling Stones as Satisfaction. So, like, just to, I mean, I've got to think that being there at 9.30 in the morning, I can't even imagine, like, rubbing my eyes, waking up in the morning, being like, all right, let's have some breakfast and go see the dead. Like, you know, it's... Like, <laughs> no, really. Like, I, I saw a handful of, um, of Sunday afternoon shows where the band would go on at, you know, 3 o'clock in the afternoon or 4 o'clock in the afternoon where they're trying to get the show over so people could go home on a Sunday night, yeah. which is, you know, Red Rocks does that all the time for, for three-day runs uh, on the weekends. But, you know, even, even starting a show at noon, I've seen, like, a bunch of shows that start at noon because, like, you know, it'll be a long afternoon, like, three- or four-hour show. I've never, I don't think I've seen any concert that starts at 9.30 in the morning much less seeing the Grateful Dead at 9.30 in the morning. <laughs> when you first said it was at 9.30, I don't know why, but I just assumed that, that everybody went long, and it's just that's when they finally got on. But they kicked the whole thing off? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're the first band on on this thing. Oh so God. it's like, it, it's so um, out of character where you think, okay, and like ordinarily when you think um, how slotting works at the festival, it's usually like the warm-up bands. You know, the yeah. progressively as the day goes on, you get bigger and bigger and bigger bands which ordinarily would suggest that the Grateful Dead would go on last because you think how many bigger bands are there in 1982 than the Grateful Dead. But evidently, based on this lineup, you know, Fleetwood Mac was at the absolute peak of where they were in 82. You know, like they, they're as big as they came at that point. And then you think about, you know, Jackson Brown in 82 was huge as well. So, you know, I would have I slotted, you know, Jerry Jeff Walker and, and Jimmy Buffett to go before the Dead. But uh, but evidently, whoever was putting this thing on decided that you know Jimmy and Jerry Jeff Walker should you know probably go on. I'm guessing one of those guys was second, and the other one was third before they got to probably Jackson Brown, and then Fleetwood Mac as the closer. But um, but what a what a day of music, you know? Like imagine like getting out there and saying the worst band on the bill as far as like from a slotting perspective is going to be the Grateful Dead at 9:30 in the morning. Uh, just such a fun way to to spend a day. Oh, and you know, like I mean, I remember back when I was in. This is going back when I was in high school on St. Patrick's Day. They would we we would start off with ten cent beers, and then every hour it would go up, right? And yeah, yeah, progressives, yeah, right. And so by about eleven thirty, you know, you're just done. And then, but then, St. You know, you miss the parade, you miss everything because you know you started so early. And that's, I mean, I could see this year. You know, I can't imagine somebody making it all the way if they hit it hard for the Grateful Dead, which most people. It seems like most of the guy you guys did. I don't know how you could make it all the way to the end without taking a you know without taking a little bit of a refresher nap or something. Or t- taking something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it was a nap, but but something something's going in there. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, there, it's um, it, and then, by the way, there's other bands on the uh, on the bill as well, and I've I've got to look at who else it was, but I think like potentially like the Talking Heads and like um, a couple other groups were were on there too. So if you look at you know the the US festival, um, it was um, it, it was a pretty legit thing. Pat Benatar and uh, the Kinks and a few others were, were on there too. So yeah, it was, it was a, kind of a weird. I mean, that was that was right when I started college, and so that was kind of a weird time for music. There was there was a, a lot of lot going on. You were kind of rolling out of the hair bands or rolling into the hair bands, and you know like Fleetwood Mac. I mean, they were. Jackson Brown, I was like that. He was already sort of crested. I, Fleetwood Mac, I mean, what is it? The, their album Tusk. I think that one came out probably in, I want to say maybe late seventies. Yeah, like early, late maybe maybe eighty at the latest. I don't even know what their album would have been in eighty two, but 
Yeah, so it's a, it was kind of a weird. That was sort of a weird transitional period in in um, music. I I think you know I th- I know like a lot of my friends that I grew up with. You know we they were real '60s bands like and they you know the, and and then a lot of guys I went to college with were didn't appreciate that they all into the hair band stuff. You know and and I and I you know I would be like oh that's those aren't real bands like. Van Halen's not a real band. Loverboy's not a real band. You know, all these... Yeah. Looking back on it, I'm like, who cares? You know, but they're... Like, you got on... You were on one team, and everybody else on the other team, and so I I think that was that transitional period where everything was a little bit bit weird. Well, definitely. Because you're also coming out of the post-punk era, right? You're just, like, coming off of, like, The Clash and The Sex Pistols, and uh, you were getting into, like, the first, like, new wave uh, bands, whether it was, like, Blondie or The Talking Heads. That was that whole sort of, like post-punk New York City, like, post-Lou Reed um, kind of scene going on. Yeah. And it was pre, you know, before, like, hair metal completely took over. But I, so many people have always been like, oh, the 80s, like, there was no good music in the 80s. And I look, like, the years, like, from, like, 80 to 84, and I think there are so many great albums that came out of that era. Oh, yeah. Whether it was, um, like, you know, Sticks or Cheap Trick or Talking Heads, there's, or Blondie, there, there's so many creative albums. But, you know, Talking Heads for me is, like, I'll always say it's one of the best bands that's ever been created. And I think the early 80s, you know, they're absolutely on fire. So, yeah, there's a lot of crap sort of one-hit wonders, you know, like that were happening during that era. But there's a lot of really creative, like top-to-bottom amazing albums that were being put out at that time. Yeah, and you, know, you also you also came off of, of, of a period, the disco period, where people were just like, in a, and it, it was like a refreshing period to, where they were transitioning into this, whatever was going to be next. And and so, yeah, like I said, but there were a lot of camps back then. I know, I know just from... You know that was my time in college, and there were all, a lot of camps. So you'd go to one fraternity house, and this is what you could expect. And then you go to another fraternity house, and this is what you'd expect. And it didn't matter. And they kind of stuck to their genre. And so <laughs> depending on what you were looking for, you know, like before a game, you'd go over here because that was all ACDC and hearts. <laughs> you know, and right. it, get all fired up, get pumped up for the game. Right. We're gonna crush. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. That's really funny, but I mean, and you look at all the, you know, you look at the Grateful Dead during that period, and they were coming off kind of their disco phase as well, where like, songs like Shakedown Street definitely had very much of a disco vibe to it, and the Rolling Stones at that time were definitely coming off of like their disco period as well, with like Sun Girls and, uh, and um, you know, some of the other sort of like um, uh, Tattoo You, you know, those were like very much kind of like post-disco, where you still had the disco like guitar riff that Keith was playing, but now you're getting back into like straight rock and roll as well. What was the one where where Mick and um, David Bowie they did a it was kind of a disco song I, I can't remember what it was but they did a few songs together where David Bowie did songs with I don't know if it was Mick doing solo or if it was the Rolling Stones but I can't even remember the name of it but it definitely had a disco feel to it yeah they um, they did Dancing in the Streets together if I remember Dancing in the Streets yeah that uh, one, yeah and then uh, and Bowie was also doing you know duets with um, with Freddie Mercury at that time too he was doing Under Pressure at that same time so he was kind of doing a bunch of fun duets. Yeah, yeah. So that, that was like a duet era. That was <laughs> everyone was doing duets then. Yeah, Michael Jackson and Paul McCartney did a duet. I mean, yeah, Don so Don Henley was doing one with Stevie Nicks. You know, there's a uh, all sorts of different stuff that was happening. I'm telling you, there was a lot of creativity going on at that period of time. Like you said, people looked at the time. People were like, "Oh, this is." Looking back on it, it's good. It's good music. I mean, there, it's there's a lot of good stuff that came out of it, and a lot of people grew from that. Like there are a lot of things that people evolved from that that type of music you know well, I, I think that's why the us festival is so uh, unique because it was put on by steve wozniak who um was you know the co-founder of apple 
And, uh, and essentially, if the, I don't know how true the story is, and this is something maybe we'll ask um, David Gans when we have him on as a guest in a week or two, is um, Bill Graham was brought on as the promoter last minute to basically save the festival because ticket sales were low. And Bill obviously could bring on any artist he wanted. He just needed to put his affiliation to the thing. And so he just put together this massive eclectic group of like big artists uh, and turned it into the US Festival. But from what I understand, like Wozniak was, you know, I mean, I'm sure he could suffer a hit. The guy had plenty of money. But, uh, you know, did he want to have sort of the, uh, the blemish of putting on like a really like lame, unticketed, you know, barely sold out or barely selling show? But as soon as Graham got involved, um, I think they sold like a couple hundred thousand tickets. And I think it was, you know, multiple days and, and multiple venues. Yeah, I mean, but if you think about it, Apple was not what we know it today in 1982. I mean, the personal computer wasn't even what he, wasn't even really around. So you know, Wozniak didn't have the cachet that he had. That he had, and Jobs certainly didn't have the cachet back then. I think it was you know they were just getting, it was just starting to happen. So that would have <laughs> good thing he made that decision to bring in the experts. Yeah, well, I think that they needed the experts. And wow, I'm actually looking now at uh, at everyone that was there, and it was um it was. A- Bigger deal than I thought. It was Tom Petty, Santana, The Police, The Kinks, Whoa. The Talking Heads, uh, Jimmy Buffett, The Dead, Fleetwood Mac. I mean, this, this is a that's a that's a pretty heavy hitting lineup. Oh sure. And that and was that. How many days was that? Uh, it was I think a couple days. It was a weekend. I think it was a three day weekend. Um, I'm guessing it's probably over Labor Day weekend. But they did they wow. did 1982 and 1983. In 1982, uh, I think there's a documentary about it. So, you know, anyone out there that wants to see, I'm not sure how much the Grateful Dead set was on there, but I've always listened to that show from um, uh, just on archive. And as I said, I've always just been blown away just based on where the slot was. <laughs> so, if nothing <laughs> else, like, uh, I, I think it was being referred to as the Grateful Dead Breakfast in Bed. So, uh, anyone that wants to see what, you know, you know there's a, a great quote that I saw when I was sort of looking through and, and checking out some of the stuff about this show. And uh, it was a, a one guy telling another buddy of his that they knew from, knew each other from the hate, and um, and one guy's like, "Do Garcia and Lesh even exist before before noon?" <laughs> you know, like because like no one's ever seen him at that hour, right? But uh, but but such a you know, like, it's definitely worth going back and checking out. So if anyone wants to hear how playing in the band and shakedown sounds at nine thirty in the morning, uh, go check out September fifth, nineteen eighty two. I think we get our co-hosts back, and so I'm excited to have uh, those guys join us. And I think we've got some pretty cool guests lined up that are coming up as well. 
Uh, I made reference to one of them, which is uh, David Gans, who any deadhead out there, you know, knows uh, tons about Gans as a musician, as a writer, as friend of the band, as Sirius XM radio host. Um, you want to like know a person that knows everything about the Grateful Dead. Um, I can't even tell you how excited I am to have this guy on the show, and I'm so yeah. thrilled that he's agreed to come over and hang out with us for an hour, hour and a half. So, um, so do tune in. We're not sure if he's confirmed yet for um, for our show that's going to air on the uh, the 25th of September, or our show that's going to air on the um, uh, the 11th or 12th of September. But you know, do stay tuned. I've got a couple other fun guests that we've got planned coming up as well. But you know, to your point earlier, Dan, what's made this show so much fun to do over you know since the time I've been involved now for about nine months is that we just get so many great people that are willing to come on, and and every time we get someone that's you know, kind of that in tune with what's happening with the Grateful Dead or the cannabis industry, it encourages other guests to say, I want to come on and, you know, be a part of this as well. And it increases our, our listenership. So, you know, thanks to everyone out there that's been listening. But more importantly, thank you to our guests that have agreed to come on because, like, you guys make the show. And it's great doing one with just you and me today. But um, but I love the ones where we, you and I kind of just sit back and listen, which is so much fun. <laughs> oh, I know. Like, we've had a couple of them. And... I look down at the clock and I'm like, man, we've been going for over an hour and I don't want this to end because this guy's telling some real, I mean, there's a few of the, a lot of guests just telling some great stories. And that's, what's fun about, I, 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 like I said, I think I see this show just going in such a good direction because of the guests. I mean, people enjoy telling their stories and more important, I think people enjoy listening to these stories because they're like, no way. Really? Yeah. Seriously? Yep. I mean, yeah, that's that's the fun part about it. I agree. So, you know, please uh, stick around and, and listen over the next couple of weeks. We do have some fun things planned. But until then, I want to say thank you to Dan Humiston, our producer, for producing all these great shows, like 120-plus episodes now on, on this show, as well as hundreds and hundreds of other Canvas podcasts. So thank you, Dan, for all you're doing for us. You're welcome. And uh, on behalf of... Um, Larry Mishkin, who is um, watching a child get married, Mazel Tov to Larry and Larry's family, and to uh, Jim Marty, who I think is taking a breather before, um, you know, or after he's gone to, uh, to Dick's here. Uh, and, you know, on behalf of me, who's still sitting in his office trying to grind out some work, <laughs> um, have, a, have a great day, and we'll see you next time on the Deadhead Canvas Show, and please enjoy your canvas responsibly. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Cannabis Health Radio is a podcast about stories from people around the world who have used cannabis to deal with serious ailments, many of them life-threatening. My name is Ian Jessup. My co-host Corey Yelland is no stranger to the devastating emotional impact faced by so many people receiving a death sentence diagnosis from a doctor. Told she only had months to live with anal canal cancer, Corey researched and immediately began using cannabis oil to eliminate her cancer and has been cancer-free for more than a decade. She told herself that if it worked, she would spend the rest of her life helping others, which she does tirelessly every day. 
When you listen to our podcast, you'll hear many stories like Corey's, along with others who have used cannabis oil for many more ailments besides cancer, such as chronic pain, PTSD, MS, and many, many more. As one of our guests said, your podcast gave me the confidence to save my own life. We regularly get messages from listeners who have heard our podcast and use cannabis to solve a serious health issue of their own or that of a loved one. We hope you listen to these stories and be as inspired and moved as we are with each and every episode.